Well, thank you, choir and orchestra, for leading us in worship today. We know that our theme, obviously, this year is a journey of faith, and our theme for the fall of this year is what do you believe? And we have been exploring various topics as we are constructing together a worldview, a, a biblically-based worldview that includes theological reflection and practical application. That's our goal. And so we have been having this conversation now for the last three weeks. And so let's continue the journey this morning by asking this question, what do you believe about the government? And you know, the New Testament has much to say about our relationship with the government and the government's role and responsibility in society. It, it actually addresses that very topic. There are multiple passages in the New Testament. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But the one that we'll uh, focus on this morning is found in Romans 13. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll ask you to look at that with me. Romans 13, verse 1, where, remember, Paul is writing this letter. He's in Corinth. He's writing a letter to the church in Rome which is located where the seat of government is in the ancient world in the first century. So Paul says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For one, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. <clears throat> if revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. <clears throat> Pretty clear admonition, would you not agree, from Paul? Um, he paints somewhat of an idealistic picture, if you will, of government. Now, obviously, you and I live in um, now 2,000 years later, and we have watched how governments have ruled and the effect and impact that governments have had on society. I came across a few quotes about government and about politics that I'll share with you this morning. Um, a very famous uh, political scientist, Groucho Marx, he said, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. <clears throat> Bill Clinton said, being president is like running a cemetery. You've got a lot of people under you and nobody is listening. <clears throat> P.J. O'Rourke said, the Democrats are the party of government activism. The party that says government can make you richer, smarter, taller, and get the chickweed out of your lawn. Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work and then get elected and prove it. 
Winston Churchill said, a politician needs the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, and then have the ability afterwards to explain why none of it happened. <clears throat> Ronald Reagan said the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <clears throat> Winston Churchill said, the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. <clears throat> Milton Friedman said, if you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert in five years, there'd be a shortage of sand. <clears throat> Thomas Sowell said, liberals are very broad-minded. They're always willing to give careful consideration to both sides of the same side. <clears throat> and then Will Rogers, he said, I don't make jokes, jokes. I just watch the government and report the facts. Well, <clears throat> you know, um, Politics is an interesting entity. It is its own field of discipline, as you know. We have political scientists actually in our church. And understanding our relationship with the government can be somewhat controversial, at least the conversation about it can be. Let me just remind you of the context of this conversation. First of all, the context of Romans. When Paul wrote Romans, Claudius was the emperor in Rome. Claudius was known for a number of things. He's at least mentioned in the New Testament. If you remember, he temporarily expelled the Jews from Rome. Y'all remember that story? And so he's had a connection uh, to, uh, to Paul's, um, at least ethnic connections, if you will. But the bottom line is when Paul wrote Romans, the government that was in place was an imperial form of government. There was an emperor who lived in Rome and exercised authority and absolute power, if you will, over society. Christians at this time, the church was brand new, Christians had little or no influence in governmental affairs. Then the historical context, once you get past the first century and you just study the history of the relationship between the church and the state, it's, a quite, it's quite a fascinating study. Constantine in AD 313 will issue an edict where Christianity becomes tolerated, becomes legal, if you will. Eventually, by AD 325, uh, Constantine will allow Christianity to be the favored religion throughout the Roman Empire. Quite a, a twist, quite a turn of events, if you will. And then if you'll just continue to turn the pages of history, then Christianity will become deeply connected to the state and to the affairs of governing human beings. So much so that as you make your way through the Middle Ages and to the era prior to the Reformation, in the West, the leader of the church in Rome was also given power in governing. He had his own army and he had a group of states who were underneath his authority and so the church and the state were deeply connected for several hundred years. And then as you emerge from the era of the Reformation, you still have a deep connection in some places between the state and the church. As a matter of fact, even to this day, in AD 2021, we have state churches in some places across the world. For example, in England, the sovereign of England is also the head of the church. So there's an official state church 
if you will. There's this deep connection that exists. We also have, after the Reformation, we have examples of republics and uh, democracies and dictatorships and theocracies. And today, that is our current reality. As you look across the world, people are governed variously. There are all types of government expressions that exist and, and structures that exist across our world. We have Islamic theocracies and structures that are in place. We have democratic republics like ours, and we have numerous other examples of different governing structures. Throughout these 2,000 years, Christians have been favored, they've been ignored, and they've been persecuted. And so we have seen all of that lived out in history. In the United States, the context in which you and I live in our own culture, you know, the United States Constitution does not mention God, but every state constitution mentions God or the divine. Congress, historically, has been overwhelmingly Christian. That's true today. With our latest election in 2020, 88% of the members of Congress self-identify as Christians. In other words, almost 90% of our representatives in Washington identify as Christians. Every president has either self-identified as a Christian or has at least had Christian connections. Two of our most famous presidents, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, are two who are somewhat anomalies because neither one of them was officially affiliated with any Christian denomination. But for the most part, our presidents have all expressed a Christian commitment. In fact, Pew Research is surveyed American adults and their latest research says that one half of American adults today believe that the Bible should influence U.S. laws. So you and I live, even though I would not say that America is a Christian nation, I think that's a little bit of a, of a simple statement. What I would say though, is that there have been Christian principles and a Christian veneer and then individuals who are Christians who have actually shaped how our government works and functions. Agreed? Even though I think it'd be wrong to say we're a Christian nation per se, I do think it's pretty obvious from a fact perspective that our government has been shaped by Christian ideas, principles, and has pretty much been run by self-identified Christians. But you and I aren't just Christians, we're Baptists. What about Baptists? Well, Baptists have been proponents of beliefs like soul competency. We believe that every human being has the right to respond to God as they see fit. They're competent in their own soul. We believe for the believers. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Baptists historically have supported religious liberty and the institutional separation of church and state. Back on July the 4th in this pulpit, Dr. Wade preached a really powerful sermon and he, he laid out for us that journey, that history of Baptists and how we have been committed to religious liberty. We have historically embraced, embraced personal responsibility in the public sphere, sphere. Even though we embrace institutional separation of church and state, 
we have worked to influence our leaders by representing Christian values and principles through entities like the Christian Life Commission and the Baptist Joint Committee on Public Affairs. So even though Baptists believe in the institutional um, separation of church and state, we have been very much involved in the public sphere and in the conversation about the affairs of humanity as they are in, in lived out in the context of our own particular governing structure. Now, with all that said, what does the Bible say about it? When you look at the scripture, well, the Old Testament, of course, is the story of Israel, and Israel lived according to theocratic principles. Uh, they had a king that was supposed to represent God to the people. But when you come to the New Testament, you'll find that, that we have some insight that I think can guide us today. So let me just give you quickly the passages that you might want to refer to as you try to come to an understanding of what you believe the New Testament teaches about government. Romans 13, 1 through 7. We just read that text. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And then the parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels. But Mark 12, 13 through 17. Acts 5, verse 29. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. <clears throat> I would also reference John 19, verses 8 through 11, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, and Revelation 13. Those texts all have something to say about this topic, and there are principles that we can discover as we start looking through these various texts. I'll mention some of them as we make our way through here in the next few minutes. First of all, let's talk about the place of government according to the New Testament. When you look at what the New Testament teaches about the place of government, first of all, you'll notice that it has derivative authority. Christians are not anarchists. Christians have historically embraced the role of government and the need for it. However, government is not authoritative in and of itself. It receives its authority from God. Look at verse one of, of Romans 13. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. John 19, verse 11. Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have authority over your life? Jesus says in John 19, verse 11, the only reason you have any authority is because it has been granted to you from above. So Jesus was saying to the Roman representative in Israel, your authority is derivative. It's come from God himself. That's exactly what Paul says in this text, that governmental authority is derivative authority. Second, I would say the New Testament teaches that the place of government has to do with order in society. The general function of government is to help set and maintain order in society. The rule of law, the expectations set a tone for the behavior of the citizens of any nation. So the government exists to bring order. Also the government's place is to provide for the common good of the people. That's exactly what this text says. If you look at verse three, Paul says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. He says, don't you wanna be free from fear? Do what is right and to be commended. In other words, the government exists in its ideal form to bless the common good of the people. 
Its aim is good, to care for the people, to ensure their protection, their ability to live without fear, to live their lives, to, to live in families, to live and contribute to communities, to live in neighborhoods, in peace. The government's responsibility in place is to provide for the common good of its citizens. The government also exists to mete out justice. Paul says in verse four of Romans 13 that the, the government bears a sword. It bears a sword not for no reason at all. It implies a rule of law. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 and 14, the government provides punishment for the evildoer. It implies that there's a system of justice, that the government is going to participate in protecting the property and the personhood and the rights of its citizens. That is a part of the responsibility of the government is to mete out justice. But then finally, I would say this, it's limited in its scope. The government has a certain arena of responsibility. However, the government is not to impinge upon the liberty of conscience, upon the freedom of religious expression. In Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, you remember this story, they asked Jesus, they were trying to trip him up, and they said, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, that question was, was layered with context. These Jews felt the shackle of the Romans on their shoulders, and they bristled. They did not appreciate what Rome brought to Israel, and they certainly didn't, didn't appreciate having to pay for it. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, well, bring me a coin and let me look at it. So they did, and he said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And what did Jesus say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But, what did he say next? The government's limited in its scope. He said, but, what? Render unto God what is God's. So Caesar only gets what belongs to Caesar. What belongs to God belongs to God. The liberty of conscience, the ability to practice our faith, that is something that is precious. And so the government is limited in its scope. When I was in seminary doing my PhD work, I, my major professor was Dr. William R. Estep, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. He wrote this wonderful little book called Revolution Within the Revolution. And this is about the story of the liberty of conscience, about religious liberty right at the very heart of the revolution, if you will, in the United States. But he tells a wonderful story in this book, and it's, it is historically true, obviously. Thomas Helwes was a separatist preacher in England, and he moved to Amsterdam because he was being persecuted in England, and he took his church with him. And they were, when they arrived in Amsterdam, they encountered a group of Waterlander Mennonites, and they began to have conversations. And one of the things the Mennonites said to Thomas Helwes was, your understanding of baptism is insufficient. Thomas Helwes was a member of the Church of England and he baptized infants. And so the church was built around that connection to the state as well as the, its connection to the community of faith. The Mennonites said to Helwes, you need to read your New Testament and evaluate your understanding of baptism. John Smythe and Thomas Helwes studied the scripture together and came to the conclusion the Mennonites were right. So John Smythe baptized himself. Then he baptized Helwes. And then they, they abandoned their church and they reconstituted their church and Helwes and Smythe baptized everybody as believers. Helwes decided 
to go back to England because he felt like he would be favorably treated if everybody just understood what he was teaching. So he took his little church back to England in 1613 and he wrote a book or a pamphlet really called The Mystery of Iniquity. It's the very first plea for religious liberty in the English language. And in the fly leaf of that pamphlet, he sent a personal copy to King James. Yes, that King James. And here's what he said to the king in the fly leaf of a mystery of iniquity. He said, we still pray for our Lord the King that we be free from suspect for having any thoughts of provoking evil against them of the Romish religion, that's the Catholics, in regard to their profession. If they be true and faithful subjects to the King, for we do freely profess that our Lord the King hath no more power over their consciences than over ours, and that is none at all. Thomas Elvis, the first Baptist preacher in England, sent this note to the king and said to King James, you have no power over our conscience. In other words, your power is, a, is derivative and limited. He said, for our Lord the king is but an earthly king, and he hath no authority as a king can require no more. For men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves, and the king shall not answer for it. King James received that pamphlet from Thomas Helwes and he promptly put Thomas Helwes in jail. <clears throat> and three years later, he would die in jail. It's quite fascinating to me that there have been generations of Baptist preachers who will only preach from the King James version of the Bible and he put the first Baptist preacher in prison. It's just one of those ironic twists of history. The point that Helwes was making though was that government is limited in its scope. Does that make sense? It has authority, it's limited authority. Well, what's the posture of Christians toward government? That's the real question now for us. How are we supposed to respond to the government? Well, I wanna give you three suggestions. First of all, submission. That's exactly what this text teaches. That's what's taught throughout, I believe, the New Testament. We are to subject ourselves to it. That's what Romans 13 verse one says. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Paul, Peter says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Submit yourselves to human authorities. Now, it's interesting, y'all. The, the Greek word that's translated be subject. It's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter. It is the word submit. It's interesting that Paul doesn't use the word obey. Neither does Peter. They use a more general word that suggests more of a tone and it leaves room, it's a little less restrictive than the word obey. What Paul and I believe Peter is saying to us today, both of them together with the rest of the New Testament, is there's a general tenor that should mark Christians. Our disposition, we're not anarchists. We are to recognize the hand of God in the affairs of humans. And that means that we acknowledge God's will and God's purpose for society. And so historically, Christians are to have the tenor of being submissive toward governing authorities. Second, support. We are to be supportive toward the government when possible, of course. First Timothy 2, verse 11 and 12, we're to pray for our leaders, Paul says. Pray for the king. Pray for those who are in authority. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We're supposed to support what does Paul say here in Romans 13, verse six and seven? He says, pay your taxes. 
If you owe taxes, pay them. Why? Because that contributes to the common good. It provides for members of society so that they might have the things that are necessary for their well-being. And so the point is, Christians in general are to be supportive of their government. So submissive and supportive. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But then guess what? There's a little bit of a rub sometimes. And so I'll offer you one other word. We struggle sometimes with the government. We do, as we should. Because sometimes we're faced with challenges. For example, Acts 5, verse 29. The disciples are brought in before the authorities and they tell them you can't preach any longer in the name of Jesus. And what did the disciples say in Acts 5, verse 29? We must obey God, not man. So there are times when the application of government impinges upon our liberty of conscience and the practice of our faith. Depending upon the governmental system you're under, it changes and varies. For example, we have Christians today in Afghanistan, and we already know the Taliban's posture toward Christians, true? They're already on record. We know their view of Christianity. We know their perspective when it comes to Muslims who convert to Christ in Afghanistan. We know that the Taliban sees that as evil and their response to it is to kill those people. So there are Christians who are fleeing persecution. Historically, Christians have done that very thing. It's as old as the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the Bible says the church scattered from Jerusalem, why? Because of their missiological strategy? No, what does it say? Because of the persecution. Mary and Joseph, they actually fled Israel and went to Egypt to protect Jesus. Remember that story? They fled persecution. And so there's, there's warrant for it. There are times when we struggle with the relationship we have with the state, with the government. Christians sometimes on occasion practice civil disobedience, peaceful protesting, Movements like the one led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, standing for Christian principles, standing against injustice. Sometimes it's necessary. In a government like ours, I would tell you it's the exception, not the norm. But there are some places across the world where it's the norm and not the exception. Does that make sense? It's a challenging relationship. Sometimes our posture toward the government is one of struggle. It's difficult and challenging. And yet I believe that God can give us the wisdom and the grace to live up to the task. So, let me just read to you in closing this morning a letter. It was written in the second century. It was written by a disciple and it's called the Epistle, epistle rather, to Diognetus. We don't really know who Diognetus was as a child of God. We don't know who the apostle was. He was Mathetes. It just means a disciple. Could have been his name. But persecution was already on the rise. And here's what this Christian wrote to another Christian, trying to describe how Christians were living. He says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. Remember, this is written in the second century when persecution was on the rise. They neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular or peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, but following the customs, customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, 
they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is is as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They're unknown and condemned. They're put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are lacking in all things, yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor glorified. They're evil spoken of and yet are justified. They're reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay insults with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Wow, what a, what a word about our forebears. What should they say about us? Here's what I would say. It's my hope that they will call us Christians because of how we live our lives in their midst. May it be so. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we are grateful for the opportunity to to live in this place, in this country. Lord, recognizing that we're blessed. As I said, we have been surrounded by and blessed and contextualized by many Christians who serve in our government, and we're grateful for it. We also know we have brothers and sisters across the world who are much less fortunate and find themselves in very challenging places. But I pray, Lord, that we'll be thoughtful about our relationship to our governing authorities, that we'll be prayerful and supportive and invested and involved, and that we'll pray for our leaders, and we'll even pray for the leaders across the world who don't honor you. And ask, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to live as these folks who were described in this letter so many years ago, recognizing that we are strangers in this world, citizens of heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.